Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Artistic Director of the Intamon Theatre in Seattle, who also has been the Director of the Broadway shows, The Light in the Piazza and Awake and Sing, Bartlett Share. Welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you. Center. It's great to be here. Now, life in the Piazza is a big part of your life recently and in the future as well. It just recently closed in New York City, but it's about to start in San Francisco on August 1st on National Door. Yes, it's uh, been an enormous part of my life. It's been the last three and a half years. We mm-hmm. started it three full summers ago at the Intamon Theater in a very small production, built that up to the Goodman uh, about eight months later, then brought it into New York for its expected 12-week run which extended a year and a half, and now we find ourselves in the middle of a rehearsal for a tour every second, and it goes out on a 50-week tour starting in August. How did the whole process start three and a half years ago? Um, It began uh, through... Craig Lucas, who mm-hmm. we had a really close relationship with at Intamon. And he's now the associate artistic yes. director at Intamon. And uh, he and Adam had been working on it. Adam Gettle. Adam Gettle mm-hmm. were working on it. They had done a workshop of it at um, Sundance four summers ago, which we attended. And uh, everyone was, of course, very excited about it even then. And we got involved at that point and started planning. So that's how it came in. But you say we got involved. You're saying we as the theater, the Intamon, yeah. you were not originally directing this project. No. Uh, Craig was originally directing it. The The intention and the plan always was for him to get a chance. One thing Intamon can do is provide a lot of security for them to explore a show any way they wanted. So we said that come to Intamon, we'll protect it. We won't let critics in. We'll build a process for it. So we initially built it from to go from the Intamon to the Goodman, and said Craig could direct the first one, and if they were still, you know, if they still wanted to go on, it would be great. It turned out they felt like there was more work that still needed to be done on the book and it would be easier. I was always sort of the backup player, um, supporting it, but everybody felt that if for some reason they want to make a change, it would be easy for me to step in, having been with it all the way from the beginning. But you say you were a backup player. You're you're not the obvious choice for directing a musical. You've done a little opera work. You don't look at your resume and see loads of musicals no, on it at all. True. So what was the experience for you as a director, very well known for his classical work? You've done some, work with some new plays. But taking on a musical, was it was a big step? Um, it was the biggest thing I'd ever taken on. No question about it. A musical is uh, the... Himalayas of the theater <laughs> because so much is expected of a new musical and so many people are really aficionados of a new musical. I think I was qualified only in the sense that I am a very precise storyteller and whether, no matter what form it is, I think I, I feel like I have enough experience to be able to tell a story effectively. And so the presence of music or not music did not immediately make sense as to whether I was appropriate or inappropriate to direct it. And taking it on, it didn't really seem... The presence of the music was really not about what I could bring the most to it in terms of the storytelling. Well, this is a musical, but it's not your typical Broadway musical. The music certainly is not a typical Broadway music. Correct. And the story itself is based on a a movie from the 50s, so it's a story that already existed. What do you think you were able to bring to it from your background that really made it what it is today? Um, I think that... uh Essentially, a lot of the great European directors that I'd worked, that I'd studied or really, really knew well, 
particularly Giorgio Strahler. This sounds weird to people to hear this, but Giorgio Strahler was really, truly the greatest director in the last century. Uh, he ran a, sm- a theater in Milan called the Piccolo Teatro di Milano. And even though most Broadway people may, may or may not know him, uh, I'd spent a lot of years really studying his work closely. The kinds of things you learn about what Strahler did in the theater, we use a lot of those kind of ideas in something like Piazza, design-wise, the scale of the storytelling, and partly also... Um, my work at the Guthrie with Garland actually prepared me very deeply to take on what is beautiful about Piazza. It feels like an old classic, and it feels like something brand new at the same time. And I felt I had a good enough sense of how to pull those two things together. Now, how involved was Adam Gettle in the creative process three and a half years ago? Obviously, he wrote the, he wrote the score. Yeah, both the of them are very intensely involved, both Craig and Adam, uh-huh. intensely involved. I mean, we, did, we would develop every single thing together. Uh, and every single idea together, and there's no there's no part of that that would you would say is where I start and where Adam leaves off and where Craig uh-huh. begins because all three of us have very acute um, artistic minds. And Jonathan Butterall, who's a musical stager who joined us in, in here, was great. And Ted Sperling was great. It was a very tight collaborative unit. Had you worked with Adam before? No, never. Mm-mm. As someone who's done the vast majority of his work, really all of his work, in the not-for-profit field, you're used to doing shows that run four or five, as you said, even the even Piazza here in New York was scheduled for 12 weeks. What's been the experience for you living with a show for this long and now, in fact, revisiting the show, the production, with a, with a new cast? Yeah. Uh, interestingly, it's a little bit like getting something, you know, dropped in your coffee. Um, uh, the... Probably the most uh, extreme impact is the time that we had to develop a piece like this, the detail that can go into really, really sharpening it. I've always been one of those people that believe that the difference between the American theater and everywhere else is not effort, intelligence, skill, whatever, is only time and money. That often in the regional theater, you'll find you get three weeks at the outside four weeks, very short preview process, and you're supposed to make something great. Whereas if you see a great piece in, in Europe, they may have worked on it six months or longer. And in the case of Cymbeline, which is something I did before, I built up a process of doing shows more than once. So I would extenuate my own rehearsal process and be able to get the level of detail that would make it as good as it was. Now, Lincoln Center provides that at an even higher level because even though the rehearsal process isn't much longer, that lengthy preview process and then working on something through, you really realize how much extraordinary work you can get accomplished when you really have the time. And when you have the time, almost anything is possible. And when you go out on a national tour, obviously many different cities, many different theaters, many different setups, and I would assume many of them different than Lincoln Center. What changes have you had to make in terms of the direction, the staging, the the whole creative? Well, everything's different than the Vivian Beaumont Theater. Right. I mean, the Vivian Beaumont Theater is like a parking garage. It's so big. And it's also the, the stage is, is a what it's a very a very it's a thrust that comes, comes out, well yeah. out. And yeah. having grown up at the Guthrie, which is very not similar but even more extreme thrust, I I had a some. It's my favorite kind of space because the great thing about some place like the Vivian Beaumont is you have the maximum amount of scale mm-hmm. to the maximum amount of intimacy. The audience is actually never very far from it, and you can pull way down, and you can have something feel like a giant movie set. The tour has to completely change and pull the same level of scope into a proscenium and into a traveling deck, and that's you know that's really what we're in the middle of now is figuring out how to com- capture the same kinds of qualities, but in a f- quite a different envelope. Uh, 
So we saw the towers. It still moves. It still look extremely similar to the, the show at the Beaumont. It won't have anywhere near the depth or the breadth. But it still will be, I think it'll still be a pretty amazingly satisfying piece. Other than the actual staging, any other changes to it, either to the book or the music or anything like that? No. We haven't changed the book at all. Um, that has been so carefully honed that it's done. It's done. Um, you know, and we have a great new cast with some of the people from New York. Um, but then Christine Andreas is playing Margaret, and she's a great singer and performer. And Elena Shadow is a beautiful um, Clara. And David Burnham, who was in the the cover here, is is taking over Fabrizio. So it's a pretty great group. You had an opportunity that not a lot of stage directors have to have your show preserved via live at Lincoln Center. It may have been broadcast live, but we presume there will be a DVD, and I'm sure fans have already probably made them and are trading them around. What was the experience of watching that show transformed into a new medium, and how much input did you have in that? Yeah. Um, we had this. Ama- it was an amazing experience. First of all, it was Kirk Browning was the director, and Kirk Browning is, you know, I hope he's listening. He's eighty-five years old. He started in. He, I think he started television all by himself. You know, beginning with Toscanini in the forties, uh, and um, he was extremely generous. I think the main thing I learned from it was uh, how to capture scale, like the kind of scale you feel with it where the television wants to get really close. So our main collaboration was the difference was to how to keep a balance between how far away and how close to be. And he was great. I mean, after I saw one rehearsal on television, he took a fantastic set. I mean, he took a set of notes fantastically well and um, made some great changes. But we often hear that when theater is put on television, because the performances have been scaled for the theatrical audience and for the size of the house and indeed this was shot during a real performance do you think the people watching on television got the sense of piazza that you wanted them to get or did they see it a little a little close a little um, big we we did make some i mean th- kirk didn't want anybody to do anything differently but i i will be honest i did say to people to work more concretely with stillness that they could begin to pull their performances in, especially if they were larger, outsized comic moments, so they wouldn't kind of blow out the of the screen. Um, and to just explore the stillness rather than the speed. Uh, so there were adjustments that were made. I was kind of simultaneously working with Kurt and working with them. If I saw something that would kind of go beyond that. But it was actually surprising. You'd be surprised. It can really capture the same thing. Well, in, in that sense, and the audience, the radio audience, can see you making the gestures you were making here in the studio. Basically, the actors on stage maybe pull in their gestures a little bit, gestures they might make to reach the last row of the theater audience they don't have to make on television. Is, is yeah. that, that that kind of change? That's sort of the thing. It's also stillness. It's uh-huh. also trusting that if you do a little bit less, the camera will come to you rather than you having to go out to an audience. How about, how about in terms of uh, stage makeup versus television makeup? Any change there? No, no real change there. No, everybody was basically the same. Uh, photographs and TV pretty Yeah, it all looked good. If there were any adjustments to be made, we make them, but you couldn't really tell anything yeah. at all. And the lighting actually changed very little. It was surprising. It wasn't as it wasn't as extreme as people might have thought. The lighting was pretty much the same. And the blocking stayed pretty much now, the same. I wouldn't change the blocking. Mm-hmm. I made them move for the blocking. The cameras had to move. They had to move. They had, they had 11 cameras. They were fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we talk about Piazza, we're talking very much about the show, the show's effect, what you did with it. But the... The success of Piazza surely has had an effect on you. You are now seen as a major New York director, and and a little over a year and a half ago, you had done 
some classical work here in New York that was very nicely received, and you were running a theater in, in Seattle. What has this meant to you? How do you balance what, what surely is a change in attention to you, Bart Scherer, yeah. the director? I'm not sure I know. Um, uh, I think that um, the best answer to that question is I'm glad this didn't happen any sooner. In other words, uh, uh, I think that uh, one of the great advantages I've had is to emerge relatively slowly. I've I've really felt like as an American, I felt very uh, at the that the American theater as as a field has been extremely good to me, and um, I've been able to really grow up carefully and well taught and well looked after by regional theaters or mentors all the way through. So that by the time I was ready to keep my f- focus on the work and stay focused on something like Piazza or Awake and Sing. The success of it means very little to me. and it, I mean, I want more opportunities to keep working, but I really am a person who just keeps my head down and keeps myself working. And I'm extremely thrilled, but I'm much more comfortable being not, not seen in there. It just gives me better chances to keep building work. And that's where I'm a very ambitious person to make great things. Well, how do you juggle your time, though, between your day job at the Intamon and then doing a show like Awake and Sing, a successful revival on Broadway? I have a very lucky schedule in that the uh-huh. Intamon's a uh, spring through summer theater. Uh-huh. So I don't have to be there in the winter. And that opposite, that opposition allows me time to, like, you know, we're usually done by October, November, and we don't start up again until April. So I have all that time to, to – and I've been pretty consistently, even since I start, started in 2000 – every year going away and doing something in that period. Well, we're talking, you mentioned Awake and Sing. Was Awake and Sing something that was already in the works before Piazza, or was it a case of Piazza was a success and Bernie Gerst and Andre Bishop come to you and say, what would you like to do next? No, uh, sort of that. Um, uh, Piazza was already a success. I had sort of committed myself to not doing anything in New York in the following year. I really, Piazza was a pretty exhausting experience. Uh, it's Andre has been an enormous, enormous fan of Odette's for a really long time. And he simply said to me, would I read this play and what did I think of it, uh, Awake and Sing? I read it and I was blown away. I'd kind of been this sort of self-loathing leftist, you know, <laughs> who had always kind of, as much as I worked a lot in my own political ideas, uh, kind of was in, not as drawn to Odette's in, in my previous reading of him. But going back to the play, I was blown away. And I said to him, I think this is one of the best things I've ever read. And he said, well, then let's do it. And at that point, we were underway. But if it weren't for – it's really Andre who who really has the had the deeper insight about Odette's. And I, I channeled it or jumped on it or fell into it. And then it kept, you know, rewarding me as we went along. Of course, Awake and Sing played at the Belasco, the same theater where the original run played. Was that a coincidence? Or was that no, that was my idea. It was. <laughs> yeah, that was me saying, well, if we're going to do it, uh-huh. and we can't, we, we, we definitely were not going to be doing it uh, up at the Beaumont. Uh, it was a proscenium show they'd wanted to do before in a proscenium. I said to them, let's see if it's possible to get the same space, because by that point I already looked at it. I'd looked at the original designs. I knew the whole history of the the group, I realized that they'd actually had a giant meeting in the basement of the Blasco to make Strasburg and Clerman do the play to begin with. It was too impossible in my own... I mean, I'm one of those giant advocates for American theater, and to try to make it, create an experience where we could step into that, 
again, as an audience, as a culture, as a group, as a group of artists, that I really felt like we had to kind of do that. And then it turned out to be available, and, and they got the space, and we could build from there. Were you ever visited dur- during the run by the ghost of Belasco? Not by the ghost of Belasco. There's a cat <laughs> that lives out, out, a feral cat that everyone takes care of named Dave. Uh, that, um, but not the, no, not the ghost. <laughs> no. But how did, how did working in that space inform the show? Because for the audience... They may read the fact that it originally played there and find it a nice parallel, but but how did it really, you say, sort of formed a base for you to work from? How conscious can it be? Extremely conscious. I mean, if you walked in and looked at the original set, the original set was based exactly with Michael Jurgen and myself on the Boris Aronson footprint. So the original set that you walked in when the curtain went up was ex- almost the same as the one that was done. When you say the original before. set, you mean the initial set of your production, of production when you first came in. It was based yeah. very much on Boris Aronson's. That I'm one of those people that believes, like the globe, that space and language are related to each other. That there's a real specific relationship in terms of how the two things go together. So I thought, well, let's begin with that original footprint. And then that larger idea was to try to lift my – if I had an insight about Odette's, it was that I saw him more in the world of Chekhov than in the world of Brecht. And so I was trying to lift him into a, uh, a more poetic landscape than keep him in a naturalistic landscape. And if you know anything about his collecting of art and all that, he was more a poetic spirit in a way. So to, to, to change the set as the piece went along and free it into a poetic landscape was the larger ambition all the way from the beginning so that he could be completely recontextualized spatially and emotionally. Well, we should explain, especially now that production is, has yeah. completed, we're not going to be giving something away, is that as the show progressed, slowly elements of the set were removed, walls literally flying away. Yeah. So walls flew away, whole, entire walls flew away, with leaving us with just doors and a large staircase going out. And that was very purposeful to uh, – and I really think, having done that – and there was some quibbling with when the walls went and should they have gone and whatever. But that people listened in the last act differently than they did in the beginning, literally because the space was different. And they were freed into a different appreciation or a different focus or a different consciousness of, of Odette's actual words. And that, and finally, to the final gesture of the piece, which is often the most difficult when, you know, he gives a very rousing, idealistic speech, to be able to have it snow during that period, actually into the house, kept it in some balance so that it was both a beautiful and idealistic gesture, but it was a forbidding gesture at the same time. And that was kind of the way I was trying to lift it. So it was it was influenced by a lot of things, and and many of them, like, you know, that that are very close to me, but it was really important to be in that space and then have us as a group of actors and artists take whatever they had accomplished 70 years before and then push it to the next place. It was very specifically worked out, very clearly, hopefully clearly worked out. And that, that was not done in the original, the flying out of no, the No, no, none of that. But at the same was- time, you know, it's clear when you read Odette's that he began to experiment with a lot of other things later. Uh, and And I, you know, those naturalistic plays are hard. They get stuck. And I don't like them so much. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because you were just saying that uh, Awakened Sing was new to you, that it was only when when Andre asked you to look at it that you knew the material. But at home, at the Intamon, you're engaged in a project called The American Cycle, which over the period of its five Five years, years. you're doing five major American classics. You've already done Our Town, Grapes of Wrath, Wrath, and and, uh, more to come. Interesting that Awake and Sing could fit in that cycle. Yeah, it could. And 
but you also just said you don't always love naturalistic plays. I definitely, I almost always don't love and, naturalistic and plays. And most of, I mean, our town being more the exception, the plays you've got in the American cycle are pretty naturalistic, are they not? Mm, the Grapes of Wrath was based on the um, Galati version. Mm-hmm. We're doing, uh, Cheryl West is adapting um, Native Sun coming up this year. Oh, so that's a new stage It's a version. new staging of it, not the Paul Green. And I think that um, part of the idea there is less my, specifically my taste than certain kinds of stories you know it was a sort of inspired the American Cycle both by our managing director Laura Penn and myself wanting to look for um, opportunities to provide stories about who we were as Americans to students and our audiences that they weren't getting normally uh, it was less of a formal exploration than a content or, uh, exploration so there were certain stories we had to tell that's separate from the conversation I might give you about naturalism in the theater. I think naturalism in the American theater is one of its greater nemesis, nemesis, uh, because I do think that that kind of naturalism doesn't help us as a theatrical group, as a and that the sort of more interesting strains of the American theater and the more successful strains of American theater are the more experimental ones, with form in relationship to content. So the, the what would seem to be a meat and potatoes quality about the American cycle you're saying is not necessarily going to be not a play at all. there? No, not at all. No, there's no um, there's no couch plays in that group um, because after that we do uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a, you know it's an experiment, it's a courtroom drama to some extent, and then finally uh, All the King's Men, which will have to be fairly sweeping and epic. What 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 brought you to the Intamon and in, to Seattle? What, what about the Seattle cultural scene that attracted you, or the Intamon itself? Um, you know, I I had been, you know, when, when I left the Guthrie uh, and I worked at, uh, with Garland for five years, one of the things we he should keep say you keep referring Garland to Wright. Garland. It's Garland Wright, Wright who, who was the, the artistic director. Uh-huh. He really was one of those people who, as a primary teacher of mine taught me not only about directing, really transformed me as a director, but also what it was like to be a, uh, an artistic director, to lead an institution, to have thoughts about what was important for a theater and what it should be. And those were deep lessons for me. I went to work with Mark Lamos up at Hartford Stage, and he was another one who had great ideas about it. So when I freelanced for a while, I, I sort of put my toe in the water to a lot of theaters. I was drawn to Seattle most for two reasons. One was the space itself. The space is a great space to do the kind of work we do. It's small but epic and it's got a lot of good qualities to it. And the other was the audiences. The audiences are really intelligent, really bright, um, adventurous. And I've done some pretty crazy things. So they they seem to have gone along with it as we went along. On the Intamon's website, it gives the mission statement saying the Intamon Theater produces engaging dramatic work that celebrates the intimate relationship among artists, audience, and language, and through the exploration of enduring themes, illuminates the shared human experience of our diverse community. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, and, and, and how has that worked out in, in reality? Have you ever tried to develop a mission statement yourself? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thankfully, I haven't. <laughs> um, I, think, I think what that means is it's the, it's the tension between old and new, you know, old and new, and and one of the great things that you know, I mean, I've said I'm a big uh, art, a big fan of American theater. One thing people misunderstand about American theater, I find American theater artists to be harder on themselves than anybody. And um, one of the things about American theater is that it's so big and so diverse, 
and it, it represents such a wider group of people. And it's one of the very few places that really is doing the difficult work in the in the larger country. You know, it's gay and straight and black and white and every color, and it deals with a lot of things. And it's very different, and it it misfires a lot. It makes a lot of mistakes, but it's an enormously vibrant community that's actively trying to do the right thing all the time. And it's something that at Intamon, in a small way, we try to do that. Old, balance old against new, ma- build mastery uh, with new ideas plus old ideas, and inside of a diverse community, because community becomes the biggest part of what we do. And so if you can kind of balance all those things, you feel a real engagement of what your cult- your community and culture can be. And you can be a vibrant, entertaining entity within a local setting, which is what makes theaters unique. Now, The Light in the Piazza is certainly a very successful transfer to Broadway. Is that, I won't say mission, is that one of the goals of the Intamon to develop product? No. The only goal the Intamon has is investing in whatever obsession the, the most interesting artist we can get in the building has. And if you can get really interesting artists in the building who are going to do something you don't expect... We have some great people coming up in the next couple of years, whether it's Cheryl West who's doing uh, Native Son, whether it's uh, we're talking to someone like Sherman Alexi who's a major Native American artist, or whether it's any of those people are the people we want in the building making stories that are our stories. And then, you know, we go from there. Whether it's getting Craig back, whether it's having Adam do something, it doesn't matter. That's the only principle I go by. Well, this seems a good point to acknowledge that the Entomon did receive the Tony Award this year for Outstanding Regional Theater, which is an award, in my own experience, which means a great deal to the community yes. in which you are in. There are now some 30 theaters that, that have received this honor since the award was begun, but the greatest meaning is in that community. What was the response five years into your tenure to this award being visited uh, it, on on the Intamon, I, I have to say it's an incalculable response. It's like it makes it makes the getting the medal, you know, in the Wizard of Oz to be courageous giant. Okay, it's that times twelve. And I I I think I probably was unprepared. I tend to downplay these things, Tonys and things like that, and you know the the enormous success, Piazza, whatever. But this actual award in that community is an enormously. Um, uh, confidence building and hugely gratifying thing for our audience. It's like our audience owns the award and that they feel somehow um, acknowledged for their believing in the theater itself and our donors and things like that. And it helps enormously to help us raise money, to build profile, to do things like that. And I have to tell you, I'm surprised by that. I didn't think it would be as big as it's been. But it's a huge, huge thing to feel... Because I think Americans often feel so divided in places. So when there's a national acknowledgement of anything, it has enormous impact, enormous, incalculable impact. And in the Seattle community, Seattle has had a large uh, large number of small companies over the years, which, as I understand, over time, some of those have, have faded down. There's certainly Seattle Rep, which you are right next door to, and yep. in fact, exist in their former home. Yeah. Um, where do you think this places you in that community, and does it have a different sense of responsibility for your theater in the community? Now? Um, well, you know, th- w- there are three large theaters in town, probably four. Uh, the Rep is considered the largest. It's built by the community. It's the oldest. Um, I think they've always had the most eminent position in the theater. And ACT was founded before we were and also has its own eminence. All, I think it's kind of helped us as the small, you know, third placer to feel a little bit stronger. 
because we often I don't think from a national perspective people feel that I think people from a national perspective see us quite prominently but in our own community it's actually given us a little bit more confidence in that larger orbit there's also the children's theater which is beautifully a really great space as well um it's been a huge thing. I think it helps elevate us. I think it helps us get a little bit more leverage, particularly in contributed income, which is a very, very large issue. It's very tight for all the theaters in Seattle to survive. And any time you can get a little bit of leverage, it helps. You're going to be, uh, in the future, di- uh, directing the Barbara Seville at the Met here in New York, an opera, which is a little bit different again. I mean, Light in the Piazza had some operatic overtones, shall we say, but it's hardly an opera. So what is that like, directing musicals, directing plays, directing opera, television, all the different things you've well, done? Well, I have done, I have done a, one opera have before, uh, Morning Becomes Electra, which uh-huh. was at City Opera and at the Seattle Opera. Um, I don't know. I'm really nervous about it, <laughs> I'd have to say. Uh, it's a light opera. Uh-huh. I think the thing that makes me most nervous about Barbara Seville is not that it's musical. It's that it's comic. And capturing the comic spirit of that in the amount of time, because comedy always takes much longer than tragedy to actually stage and develop, because the precision of it has to be so much greater. So that's the part that has me nervous about that one right now, and the space and a lot of other things. Are you saying time in terms of your work or time that the audience has to sit for the comedy to develop in front of them? I mean time to get the singers and me on the same page to make something funny. To, to, to make it work. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the stage director occupies a different place yeah. in the hierarchy of opera. Yeah. And putting yourself in that position because in the theater, the director is second only ideally to the author whose whose vision is, is should be paramount. But the stage director sometimes comes a few steps below yeah. everyone else in opera. I would say it goes musical director, singers, stage director. Um, <laughs> that would be the hierarchy. But... Uh, at the same time, you know, Peter Gelb is doing a lot of revolutionary things at the at the Met, and I think there's pl- there's been enormous support for making something kind of special. It's still going to be a kind of it's still a very delightful light opera, and you know, it's for me in these situations, it's always about how do I get the deepest contact with that delectability of the piece that makes it sexy and light and fun and interesting. And we have a couple of a couple of ideas for to make it good. Anything you can share with us? Well, one, the most, probably the most, the most dramatic is that it actually has a smaller pit uh, orchestra. It only has 45, I think, in the orchestra. So we're actually building a passerelle, which comes down below the conductor. It has these very long, and they've never done something where the singers will be singing below the conductor. It'll change the sort of physical, because there's very extended finales in this. When you say below, do you mean up and down or forward into the audience? Forward into the audience. Yeah, t- closer to the audience closer than the conductor. The audience. And so five people singing full at the end of each act, you know, it'll feel a little bit very, very different in that space. It's been done in many other opera houses, just for some reason. And I had a great talk with Levine about it, who seemed really excited about the idea, and uh, Peter, and the, and the, everyone at the Met's been amazing about how, how to develop this as a kind of slightly innovative way of experiencing the operas there. You keep talking about space, and it's worth mm-hmm. noting that certainly with Piazza, with with Awake and Sing, and I believe upcoming uh, with with South Pacific, you keep working with the same design team: yeah. Michael Jurgen, Kathy Zuber, and Chris Ackerland. Yeah. Why the same group of artists? I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm a person who believes in long conversations. Uh, I'm a person who doesn't like change in those ways. It takes a long time to develop 
the kind of conversations you have over long periods of time in making the work. I'm also an extremely spatial person entering work. Um, and uh, it's the same with actors. You know, if I could work with the same group of actors over 20 years, I'd do it. I think that's the way we've known theater to become most successful over a long period of time are these long, long, deep collaborations uh, whether it's Shakespeare's company, whether it's Moliere's family who he worked with, whether it's, you know, how Princess Stephen Sondheim, those long extended conversations are what make each of these things when they when you come back around really explode and really go somewhere uh, special. And because there's a whole bunch of conversations, a lot of stuff you can just eliminate right off and you can get to the honest, complex part without fear without worry, without... And and that actually does make a big difference. I mean, Michael and I had worked before um, Piazza, but the deeper we go into those conversations, the better it is. It's I've worked with another great costume designer named Caitlin Ward, who's the same way. She's, you know, amazing. I yep. mean, there's a lot of them. You have another show coming up in New York, Singing Forest. Yes. Yeah, which was developed at the Intamon. Mm-hmm. Uh, when and when, where is that happening in New York? Well, we're hoping for the spring uh, next year. Um we have to sit down and work out schedules and things. Um, it's a great piece. Craig's a great writer. And Craig Lucas. Yeah, Craig yeah. Lucas is a wonderful writer. It takes a. It's a very adventurous piece. It's both tragedy and farce, mm-hmm. sort of smashed into each other. And like anything, I always like if whenever you break into a new way of looking at something, it opens the whole form back up again. And that's part of the great thing about about um, about Piazza, about Singing Forest. In some ways, about looking at Awake and Sing differently, that's when the kind of sparks start to fly. Singing Forest for Broadway, Off-Broadway? Off-Broadway. It'll be at the public. Uh At the public. It wants to be at the public. It's really better for the public to start. I mean, who knows after that? You never worry about it. You never think about these things. (laughs) Just do the work and go from there. Well, I mentioned it in passing, but we should ask about South Pacific. Mm -hmm. How has that come to you and, and... Certainly, that is a classic piece of musical theater that New York certainly has not seen. In it has never production. been revived. Yeah, it's never been revived. Um, again, that's uh, these things are collaborative. It's you know, I spent a lot of time getting to know Mary Rogers, Ted Chapin, people uh, Rogers and Hammerstein, um, who I think have developed some faith in me. This is a property that they've been looking at, making sure that when they were going to revive it, they did it the right way. Andre's been wanting to do it for a long time. Um, the experience of Piazza in the Beaumont, the Beaumont is a really great place to do that piece. And so we're going to now begin what will be, you know, a year and a half of work to really go inside of that piece and really look at it, Andre and I, to begin it, to begin and sit down with, you know, Ted and Mary and everyone and sort of say, well, what, how do we make it, this piece new for the 21st century, even and respect its deeper roots um, you know, going back to the 40s. Well, when you say that, it's one of the the great Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, which the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization doesn't really want tampered with. Mm. They're happy to let you play with me and Juliet, but South We're Pacific, We're not planning Oklahoma. on tampering it. So, it. so when you say finding it new, it's just exploring yeah, the material like, as it's, it is. It's, you know, these are, again, they, they fall and they, they're received into the culture in a giant way, but it's not something like, I think the most horrific thing we could do and the most dangerous thing we could do is to somehow not take it not I'm an interpretive artist I'm not a creative artist in that way I want to go and see what they made but there is an enormous amount of material there to look at you know what they made what they've built 
and and then look at that. We're not planning on you know a book rewrite or anything like that. That would that's not the kind of thing which 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 makes any sense to us because they were the best at what they did. So we want to go back, but again, we don't look at that war the same way. Um, we don't look at war the same way. We the issues of um, race that are in the piece. There are a lot of things in that piece which are are very interesting, and we have we've changed, and we feel differently about them. So, well, sure, it's a classic piece that probably every high school has done. So you really can't change too much on that. I wouldn't well, think. No, no. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not planning on changing anything. I'm planning on not screwing it up. <laughs> well, looking looking toward the future, what have you not done that you really have a burning desire that you want to do? Uh, I want to do Hamlet. Um, uh, I would. I I've toyed with the idea. I'm very interested in having worked now with actors from musicals and having worked with great stage actors on trying to find a way to build a company that includes both worlds and actually make a you know I've wondered if in the year after next in Tomorrow we couldn't do a kind of great rep which would have Victoria Clark um, and Mark Ruffalo in the same universe with Michael Barres and whoever that, that these people are so amazing and for some reason they never find themselves in the same piece and I think it would be kind of great to figure out how to do that um, and I'm always looking for a piece which usually doesn't normally find its way in the theater and see if I can find a way to put it in. And that's those are always off in the corner. Um, uh, I, so uh, whatever those might be. But I'm uh, for me, it's making things in American context with our what I think are some of the best artists in the theater working in the whole world and making things that really last. Something like Piazza, hopefully like a different approach to Awake and Sing. And I've been lucky enough to meet some pretty great people. So... I think if we can keep pulling everybody together and getting them in the same place at once, we can see if we can't keep pushing the boundaries a little bit further. I think that's a good note to say, Bart Shear. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thanks, Bart. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>